and let us pray. Holy God, you teach us that the grass withers and the flower fades, and yet your word endures forever. Today we cling to that promise that as children are born and grow and loved ones age and die, and people wage war and find ways to care for one another. Your word continues to give us hope and strength and courage to be your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning on this Transfiguration Sunday comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 28 through 43. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Just then a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. Suddenly a spirit seizes him, and all at once he shrieks. It throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth. It mauls him. And will, not, and will scarcely leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I bear with you and be with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon dashed him to the ground in convulsions, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father, and all were astounded at the greatness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Eight days after Jesus delivers the unwelcome news to his disciples that he must undergo great suffering and rejection, 
be killed and then be raised from the dead, he takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain, after which Jesus goes off to pray, and the three disciples collapse in exhaustion and begin to doze off. What happens next must have seemed like a dream. Was that Jesus, with his face and clothes shining bright, talking with Moses and Elijah? Let's just acknowledge the strangeness of this story. It sounds more like a dream than reality because it's hard for us to imagine what happens here when Jesus starts to shine. But it's not the first time that something like this happens in the Bible. In the book of Exodus, when Moses goes up Mount Sinai to meet with God, he comes back with his face radiating such light that the Israelites can't bear to look at him. It sounds strange, but there are certain experiences in life that involve a kind of transfiguration, moments when we see another person, especially the face of another person in an altered state. Think about the experience of falling in love. There's a period of time where your mind seems to have been chemically altered so that just to see the face of your beloved produces all kinds of wonderful feelings. It's part of why we have the expression, love is blind. Love alters how we see. It happens when we have children in our lives that we love, whether our own children or nieces or nephews or grandchildren. In the first couple months of my children's lives, I remember feeling drawn to look at them like there was this magnetic attraction between my eyes and their face. There's a similar connection that I've seen when a person is dying and their family members spend time at the bedside looking into their faces with incredible love and intimacy. In all these ways and more, we have seen faces transfigured, and these moments are ones we desperately want to hold on to, just as Peter wants to find a way to make that moment on the mountaintop last. This story of Jesus' transfiguration on a mountain, his conference with Moses and Elijah, and the voice from God saying, this is my son, listen to him. This episode was so important to the earliest followers of Jesus that it is found in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And every year, on the last Sunday before Lent, one of those versions of the story is the text for the day. It's an important story because it affirms our claim that Jesus is God's beloved Son, the promised Messiah. It exalts him above the law, which is represented by Moses, and above the prophets, represented by Elijah, and it foreshadows his death and resurrection. Luke tells us that Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah about his departure. When we reflect on this story, this is what we want to hold on to, the glory of what happens on that mountain. But there is another story that all three gospel writers place immediately after the transfiguration, when Jesus and his three disciples come down the mountain into the valley below. 
It turns out that while they were on the mountain basking in glory, there were nine other disciples in the valley staring helplessly at a father and son trapped in agony. The writer and pastor Debbie Thomas imagines that scene vividly. In the valley, a boy writhes in the dust. He drools, he cannot hear, and his eyes, wide open, feral, see nothing but darkness. Around him, a crowd gathers and swells, eager for spectacle. Scribes jeer, and disciples wring their hands in shame. Frauds, someone yells into the night. Charlatans, where's your master? The scribes ask the disciples an umpteenth time. Why has he left you? We don't know. The disciples mutter, gesturing vaguely at the mountain. Panic wars with exhaustion as the boy shrieks yet again. He flails, and his limbs assault his stricken face. A voice rends the night. This is my son, a man cries as he pushes through the crowd to gather the convulsing boy into his arms. Everyone stares as the father cradles the wreck of a child against his chest. Please, he sobs, please, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Today's passage tells two stories, one about the glory of God's presence and the other about the agony of God's absence. In her reflection, Debbie Thomas invites us to consider other places where glory and agony, God's presence and God's absence, exist in such close proximity. We might point to communities and countries whose resources create opportunity and possibility, while in other places poverty or warfare or violence create an agonizing daily struggle. Yet we also know that the most comfortable among us know all too well the agony of God's absence when we face isolation and loneliness, physical and mental illness, broken relationships, and inexplicable hardships, while those with little material resources know the glory of God's presence through love and family, cultural traditions, and community support. In recent days, we've had numerous examples of such glory and such agony as we have watched war unfold in Ukraine. But regardless of who we are or where we live, we know something about the proximity of glory and agony. Reflecting on this, Thomas concludes, here's the great challenge to the Christian life, the great challenge to the church the body of Christ. Can we speak glory to agony and agony to glory? Can we hold the mountain and the valley in faithful tension with each other, denying neither, embracing both? Can we do this hard, hard work out of pure love for each other so that no one among us not the joyous one, not the anguished one, not the beloved one, not the broken one is ever truly alone? 
This past week, we lost one of our modern-day saints when Paul Farmer died unexpectedly at age 62. Dr. Farmer was a physician and public health expert and the founder of the organization Partners in Health, which helps bring quality medical care to developing countries. He was a passionate and relentless advocate for the least of these, working directly to advocate and provide care for the poor and the same quality of care for the poor that we would want for our own family members. Farmer had a particular gift for holding together the glory and the agony of modern medicine, the glory of medicine's extraordinary capacity to treat all kinds of maladies through innovative procedures and drugs, and the agony that barriers of wealth and education and geography prevent such treatments from reaching some people and populations. Farmers saw clearly how the health system around the globe creates obstacles that make it difficult for doctors and patients to achieve the level of health they want and deserve. In the book he wrote, Profiling Farmer, Tracy Kidder, the book is called Mountains Beyond Mountains. Tracy Kidder tells of a talk that Farmer gave to a group of Harvard medical students. Hearing him speak, Kidder writes, made it feel for a moment like he could see into Farmer's mind. Kidder says it seemed like a place of hyper-connectivity. At moments like that, I thought that what he wanted was to erase time and geography connecting all parts of his life and tying them instrumentally to a world in which he saw intimate, inescapable connections between the gleaming corporate offices of New York and Paris and a legless man lying on the mud floor of a hut in the remotest part of remote Haiti. Of all the world's errors, he seemed to feel the most fundamental was the erasing of people, the hiding away of suffering. My big struggle, Farmer once said, is how people can not care, can erase, cannot remember. The story of Jesus' transfiguration marks a transition between the post-Christmas season of Epiphany, that Eureka season when we catch glimpses of God's presence, and the pre-Easter season of Lent when we accompany Jesus and one another on the journey toward the cross where we wrestle with God's absence. This transition is captured in the juxtaposition between the glory on the mountaintop and the agony in the valley below, where a suffering child is in danger of being erased, ignored, forgotten. Thankfully, Jesus arrives to hold them together, the mountain and the valley, the glory and the agony. He returns to the disciples he left behind and heals the child. He also demands that his disciples learn how not to abandon one another or any of God's children. I imagine we can relate to those nine disciples left behind in the valley, helplessly watching a suffering child and his distraught father, unsure what to do. 
We know how it feels when our desire not just to think and feel our faith, but to enact our faith, to live it out daily. We know what it feels like to fall short. We feel the sting of Jesus' exasperation with those followers who can't seem to do what he wants. So how can we speak glory to agony and agony to glory? How can we make sure those in agony, whether in the pew next to us or halfway around the world, know they are not erased or forgotten, not by God and not by us? Last December, we gathered together here in the sanctuary on a Sunday evening for our first in-person Christmas concert since the pandemic. It was a glorious occasion. But it also took place the day after a series of tornadoes had blown through the Midwest, leaving a trail of destruction. In the town of Mayfield, Kentucky, a tornado destroyed most of the First Presbyterian Church. Although we had not originally intended to take up an offering at the concert, we decided to invite people to give what they wished to support that congregation. We held the glory and the agony together. Last week, we received this letter. Dear Church, and then in parentheses, connectional has never meant so much. We at the First Presbyterian Church of Mayfield, Kentucky, would like to thank you. Your generous gift and God's never-ending blessings enable us to continue to help others as we make plans for the post-tornado future of our church. Much was lost, like our 100-year-old pipe organ, but much was salvaged, like our communion cross and our steeple bell. And with God's help and yours, we will and are moving forward. This is my son, God says out of the cloud. Listen to him. This is my child, the distraught father says to the crowd. Help him. This is our task holding together the glory of the mountain and God's presence and the agony of the valley and God's absence. How do we do it? We start by listening. We listen for those who are crying out. We show up however we can. When the tornado hits or the invasion comes or the prognosis is not good or the plans fall apart or the heart breaks. We ask for help when we are the one struggling. We come together and we stay together, looking to the face of none other than God's own Son, the one who shows up just at the moment when all seems lost and who models for us how to speak glory to agony and agony to glory how to hold together what is divine with what is human, how to hold fast to God's presence in the best of times and in the worst. Amen.